hear me now. You know, I've learned over the years, whenever there's a moment like that, it is almost always because of the guy with the microphone having it on mute. So anyway, that's all right. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. It's a privilege to do this. I tell you, uh, I've been kind of excited all morning that I get to come up here and be in Romans chapter 5 with you. You remember that one time a couple weeks ago when we were in Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3 and I was said to you that, you know, against the broader tapestry and backdrop of the story of salvation, we were in, in chapter 2, one of the, the bad news parts where we really focused in and zoomed in very tightly for three chapters on our problem and our helpless condition. And we even saw that a little bit in chapter 4 last week, that ultimately our works really don't do anything for us. Uh, Chapter 4, verse number 4, we saw, I told you that if you're going to memorize a verse of Scripture in chapter 4, it's that one. I'll give you one this week too. But there it says, now to him who works, it's not counted as grace, but as debt. And boy, do we really get a crisp, clear picture of just how desperate we really, really are. We don't have the ability to fix ourselves before God. We don't have the ability, no matter who you are, to generate enough merit before God that we could ever stand before Him in the day of judgment. And that day of judgment is surely coming to this world. And when you think about that, that really is bad news. That's discouraging. That's hopelessness. That's desperation. And if you felt that, or if you feel that now, even as I say that, then I would say to you, then your heart and your mind is perfectly primed to hear now the message of the gospel. So today, while we've been in the past going through that that part of the story that really painted the problem, the bad news, if you will, we are in chapter 5, and boy, what a beautiful passage of Scripture it is, or chapter of Scripture it is, because now we get to hear about God's mercy and His grace and His love for me and for you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you, and He has provided grace for you in Jesus Christ and something to stand on. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we get to talk about now. So Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. I'm going to read through the first 11 verses. I'll reference the rest of the chapter towards the end of the sermon, but let's read together the first 11 verses. Here's what the Word of God has to say to us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into His grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And now listen to this right here. For when we were still without strength, if chapters 1 through 3 were designed to do anything, they were designed to help you and I understand that we are exactly that, without strength. For when we were still without strength, hear this, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. 
For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, oh the riches of your love. Oh, the depths of your grace. That you, the great God of heaven, love us is indeed an astounding thought. It's a sobering thought. We hear it stated so many times that perhaps we grow customary with it. We grow familiar with it. We get used to saying it. We can say it to people. We can hear it from other people without giving that truth any real thought. And yet when we think about who you are, your holiness, your power, your magnitude, it is astounding to think that you love us. And yet you do. So Father, in this hour I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would give us eyes to see, that you'd give us ears to hear, and that Lord the word of hope, the word of grace, and the word of love, the word of gift would just shower down upon us, that it would seep deeply into our souls and into our minds in such a way that, God, it literally rearranges everything else in our lives. God, we pray that you do those things by your spirit and by your word, because I know I certainly can't do that in anybody's life. So, Father, help us. Be with us. Meet with us now as we meet and as we think through your word, we pray. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Here's a question for you this morning. How do you know that God actually loves us? How would we know that? I mean, just pause for a minute to think about who we're talking about here and what we're talking about Him doing for us. We're talking about God. This is the being that spoke and brought it all into existence with a simple word. There are lots of religions, and all of the religions have some kind of creation narrative, and they all say something like this. There was all this stuff, and then some being came along and arranged it differently. And that is, in short, the way the various religions and worldviews of history have accounted for creation, not Christianity. Christianity says something fundamentally different, that there was, in fact, nothing. Nothing except for God. There was no material, there were no atoms, there were no molecules, there was no wood, there was no rock, there was no clay, there was no dirt, there was no water, there was nothing except for God. And with a word, he spoke, and it all came into existence ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Truly different from what any other religion has ever said. And when you think about just that idea, we're astounded by the kind of being that he is. Wow. That's impressive that this God could take nothing and speak and now there's something that comes into existence. A word has that much power from this God. That's the God we're talking about. We're talking about the God who knows everything from beginning to end. He knows everything in the past, so he's the perfect historian. He knows every single thing there is to know about the present and he knows every single thing that there is to know about the future. And when you think about that, that's pretty astounding there again. Wow, what kind of God is this? This is a God seated and throned in holiness with no imperfections or impurities at all. He is righteous. 
He is good. He is true. Wow, what a God. So different from all the gods of antiquity that were rotten to the core. What a God is this? And when you think about that God, here's what I think, I don't know about you, but in my mind, this is the way I would naturally think about this God. To think about that God, which is the God of Christian theism, my mind is such that I would immediately think that this God would want to be aloof from us. That a God such as that would be indifferent to little specks of dust like us. That he would be inclined away from us. And I would also tend to think that the opposite would be true of us. That we, because we are little specks of dust and he is so great, that he would be indifferent towards us. and That we would be desperate for him. That we would be seeking him. That we would be leaning forward with our very beings towards him. That's what I would expect. God indifferent towards us and us desperate for him. And yet Michelangelo gets it exactly right in the, in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel as he paints the story of creation and all that takes place through those early chapters of Genesis. There is that most famous part of it at all. If you've ever been there, you've seen that there's all these different tiles in the ceiling. There's one tile that's the most famous of all the tiles, and it's the story of God's creation of Adam. And there in that picture, in that one little tile, Michelangelo captures something that is truly astounding. That what you would expect is a God that would be indifferent from us, reclined away from us, and that we, because we're specks of dust, would be seeking after him. But what Michelangelo paints is the very opposite. God, not indifferent towards us, but reaching towards us. And man, not reaching back to God, but reclined away from God, very casually, very flippantly, throwing his hand up at God like that. That is reality because that's what the Bible tells us. And that's what we see happen in our lives all the time. The Bible tells us that God loves us and we hear that. And the Bible also tells us that we're sinners in rebellion against God. And we find that to be true in every aspect of our life. We go through life so utterly indifferent to the greatness and the magnitude of God. You would expect God to be indifferent towards us, but he's not. The Bible tells us. The most amazing and wonderful truth of all, of all the great truths, of all the deep seas, theologically speaking, that Christianity gives us, it gives us this simple truth that is genuinely astounding. That despite the fact that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, despite all the heinous things that I have done and thought, and despite all the heinous things that you have done and thought, the simple, overwhelming, beautiful truth that rings off the pages of Scripture is that God loves you. So while I'm desperate and I cannot do anything to fix my problem, while all my works, if I trusted in them, would count against me, not for me, God, while I was without strength and while you are without strength, loves you and died for you. So in this passage of Scripture, we're going to discover God's love for us. But we're going to discover a lot more about that. It will answer that question, how do we know that God loves us? It will answer that question here this morning. But it's going to show us a couple other things as well. So let me just jump in and show you some of the things in the text here this morning. Number one, in verse number one and two, what Paul tells us here is that Christ justifies us and gives us peace. Now this word justification is an important theological word. To be justified means to have your standing before God delivered or made right. You see, before you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you are still in your sins, you are not justified. 
You stand before God condemned in that moment. That is to say, if judgment were to fall in that moment, you would stand before God as one who is condemned. And remember everything we saw one through three. You'd stand condemned, and if you tried to fix it on your own, you could never, ever, ever, ever do it. So that's a rather hopeless picture. So I stand condemned before God prior to coming to faith in Christ. But the Bible tells us that the moment we trust in Jesus Christ, we now stand very differently. We stand as one justified. We stand as one that's had the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That word impute simply means given over or accredited to. So I am justified. What Paul shows us in verse 1 and 2 is that Christ is the one that justifies us. And as a result of that, he gives us peace with God. He says in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, faith in what? Not just magical faith. Faith is here not just some wishful thinking. Faith is not optimism. Faith is not glass half full kind of guy. That's not what that means. Faith means a trust act. To have faith means that you throw yourself on the person of Jesus Christ and he holds you up. It is Christ who makes us whole. So having been justified by faith in Christ, now watch this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest problem that we have of all in our sin is the problem of hostility with God. Now there are lots of other things that manifest themselves in our lives when we sin. You steal something, you may very well go to jail. You get in a fight, you may very well get banged up. Sin always has a consequence. Sin always destroys. And if we're honest with ourselves, we could all just take a lot of inventory of good examples of that in our own lives, where clearly, yes, indeed, I sinned or you sinned and we reaped the consequences of it. Sin always does have that. And you see in Genesis chapter 3 these, these pictures of this. Adam and Eve eat the fruit and while they had before that had perfect union, now there's brokenness in that relationship. They're trying to play the blame game. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. That's what happens, right? There's a hostility between God Adam, where are you? Adam, God knows exactly where Adam is, and yet it's a statement to signify the now separation and disconnection from God. That's the greatest problem at all. Listen, yes, sin will bring all kinds of problems to your life, but the biggest problem of all is that now when we sin, when we chose to rebel against God, we broke that relationship with God, and we live now in hostility. And you know what it's like to walk around in sin with a guilty conscience, with a heavy soul? It's like having a boat anchor attached to your heart and you're trying to walk around and slug through life and yet your sin is just eating at you. And there is no peace with God in that moment or in that posture. But what Paul tells us now in verse number one is that we get justified not by us fixing it per se, but we, we are justified through the grace of Jesus Christ that we receive through faith. And that as a result of that, now we have peace with God. That's the first thing he says to us in verse 1. But then now in verse number 2, watch this. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace. Isn't it nice to have a good connection? You know, you need a car. Isn't it nice to be able to know somebody that you can say, I know a guy and they can hook me up. <laughs> I, need, I need a medical help of some kind. In a church like this, it's really nice. You might bump into a doctor on Sunday morning and say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of hurting right here. And they say, oh, let's try this. Come see me on Monday. You got a connection. Isn't it nice to have a connection? And yet the greatest need we have of all is the need for grace. Listen to me. Not just initial grace. 
Let me define what I mean by initial grace. Initial grace is the grace that you were showered with on the day or the night that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that moment? you remember what it was like to have been walking around with your guilt and your shame and your brokenness and your lostness and being overwhelmed by that, but there in that night or that day or that morning, wherever it was, whenever it was that you came to faith, when you believed on Christ and He showered His grace upon you, that's the grace I'm talking about with initial grace. You need that. But you know what I've discovered walking with Christ for 25 years now? I've learned this. I'm a leaky bucket. While I may indeed come close to Christ and drink deeply from that well, I get up from there and I get back into the regular rhythms of life. And the next thing you know, those old patterns, those weeds begin to spring up in the garden of my mind and thoughts I shouldn't think occur to me. Things I shouldn't say begin to come out of my mouth. And the next thing I know, I stand again. Again, needing grace. Isn't it wonderful to know a guy? Verse 2, Christ, we're justified through Jesus Christ, through whom we now have access by faith into this grace. Which is to say, you have constant connections with God through Jesus Christ, and the availability of grace is always there for you. You know, I'm, I'm the preacher in the family. I'm the guy who came to faith in Christ, felt called to ministry. So now, for guys like me, here's what it's like. Every time our family gathers, I'm the guy that prays. <laughs> Every time somebody gets married, I'm the guy that gets the phone call. Hey, could you, do the, could, you do the, could you do the wedding? Unfortunately, every time someone dies, I end up doing the funeral. I mean, okay, that comes with it, I suppose. People in my family have constantly joked, however, that I have this direct line with God because I'm a preacher, which is kind of funny. But of course, I have taken every single occasion where they've said that and said, oh, by the way, you do too. Oh, by the way, you do too. It is through Jesus Christ, not through your preacher that you have access to this grace. You don't have to have a priest before you to confess your sins to. You go directly and straight to God himself through Jesus Christ. That's the grace that is for you and to you right now. So first thing I want you to see is that Christ justifies us and gives us peace. If you're taking notes here this morning, just write down Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 18. Paul makes the exact same point there. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read the first part. For he himself is our peace. That's an interesting thought. Not he himself is the one that distributes peace to us. Not he himself is the one that can connect you to peace. No, no, no. He himself is peace. So to commune with him and to be close with him and to draw near to him is to drink deeply from the well of peace. That's what we have. Isn't it? The, the picture in my mind here is the picture of when I was a little boy or even when my children come to me now, broken and hurt and afraid and there's just something deeply powerful about being held by your father. There's something deeply powerful about the closeness and the comfort that a mother can give. And it's in that moment, in that person, that peace comes. And yet when we are in sin, when we have rebelled against God, when we have fallen, which is sure to happen to every last one of us, when we have fallen, the last thing we think we can do is come back to Christ. And yet that is the very thing that we need. So Christ justifies us and Christ gives us peace. Second thing I want you to see, Christ gives us hope in trials and grows our character. So verse 1 through 2, it's real interesting. 
He's the one that gives us grace. But now verse number three, and not only that, it's as if Paul's wanting this to say, and it gets better still. It's not just that God is going to alleviate the hostility between us and him through his son, Jesus Christ. It's that even in the here and now, in the bumps on the road of our lives right now, God is going to be with us. And even now, he says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We know this about the church of Rome. They had various trials and tribulations related to their faith. In chapter 8, for example, Paul really seems to zoom in on the realities and circumstances they're facing. They're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and Paul in chapter 8 will assure them that God is at work in and through their circumstances to bring about His glory and their good. He references it very quickly here in chapter 5, verse number 3. We glory in tribulations, which they certainly were facing, specifically tribulations associated with them being obedient to God. And of course they would stress out over it, and of course they would worry about it, and of course they would ask questions like, what's going on here, and what am I supposed to do here, and where's God? And Paul answers that question in verse 3, not only that, we glory in tribulations. That is not our natural disposition. Why do we glory in tribulations? And he, he goes down this pathway. Because we know that tribulation produces, produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Which is to say, be assured, brother or sister. Be, be assured, sweet, precious child of God. That in the sorrows of life and in the troubles of life, for the Christian who's walking with God and the Spirit of God is with them, be assured that God is at work providentially to do something in us. And there's two things that Paul says God's going to do. He's going to give us hope, but he's not just going to give us hope by eliminating the troubles and the difficulties. That's often how we pray, isn't it? There's trouble, there's sorrow, and our prayers, God take it away. How's that work out for you? Almost never, right? I mean, there are some times that God just completely eliminates the problem. I've had those moments, you've had those moments, but most of the time, the difficulty stays. The sorrow looms. The, the valley we walk through is, through is long, and God is with us. And most of the time, God works in such a way that He doesn't eliminate the trouble, but rather what He does, and isn't this gracious, isn't there a deep, deep, deep grace to us in this, that God doesn't just make it easy by taking the problem away. No, He walks with us through it, and we go through it, and He Himself grows us into something different. God is interested, y'all, not just in helping us out, God is interested in helping us out in such a way that we ourselves grow closer to Him and we ourselves become strong. This is what he says happens. So there's this little pattern. Tribulations, they produce in us perseverance. We all reach a point, we, 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 we kick against it, we cry against it, but we all reach this point inevitably where you say, well, I guess this is just part of it. I learned to deal with it. And you press forward. Tribulations produce perseverance. Perseverance then, as a result, produce character, and character generates hope. There's something about growing old in Jesus that's beautiful. It's not that you get smarter. Certainly not that you get better. But what's sweet about it is that there's now repetition. You've got reps, as we say in sports. 
right? You've got a lot of reps. They say to throw a baseball the right way, you need about 10,000 reps. They say to swing a bat the right way, you need about 10,000 reps. And I would submit to you to walk with Christ properly, I need a lot of reps. And I get those reps and I get those reps and, and inevitably the error of my way gets pruned out and there you find the sweetness of walking with Jesus through the right pattern and habit. And what ends up resulting from that is a deep, deep sense of peace and hope. There's a seasoning, if you will. How many of us have gone through things in life where we look back on it now and we would say this, I would never want to go through that again but I am so glad that I did. Because we found in those moments the silver linings. We found in those moments the strength of God. And we come through those moments ourselves stronger and more confident in Christ. This is what Paul is saying God will do for us. Thirdly, Christ proves his love for us by dying for us. Remember, I asked you that question. This was the lead question this morning that I, I baited you with. How do you know that God loves you? Is this just wishful thinking? Well, not according to the Apostle Paul. Verse number six. For while we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Wow. Remember, that's the picture that we saw there in, Genesis, uh, in, in chapters one through chapter three, that you and I are all without strength. You and I all have the inability to fix this problem. He painted it so clearly for us there in chapters 1 through chapter 3. And now in chapter 5, he tells us, when you were still without strength, which was the whole ride, Christ died for you. You want to know if God loves you? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. And hear the wailing, and hear the sorrow, and hear the pain, and see the blood, and see the wounds, and know that God loves you. Look at, look at verse 8. For God demonstrates, He proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Let me, let me tell you, I've seen this in my own life and I, in pastoring and counseling lots of different people over the years. I've found a pattern in a lot of Christians' lives. There's a sin or there's a blemish or there's an imperfection there's a disposition, there's a problem, there, there's sin in their life. And we walk around attempting to hide it from God. Attempting to cover it up and pretend it's not there. First of all, know that God sees everything. There is no hiding this from God. He sees and knows all. Second of all, we hide it because I think somehow we are walking around with this idea. Listen to me. We walk around with this idea that, man, I'm just afraid somebody or God or the church or his people are going to find out that there's something wrong with me. Listen, this is what the Bible's been telling us the whole time. Of course there's something wrong with you. Absolutely there's something wrong with you. Something's wrong with me too. Something's wrong with all of us. That's the message of chapters 1 through 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who does good. It says our mouths are like seeping with poison. Wow. Of course there's something wrong with you. And what Paul is saying is, against the backdrop of the, of course there's something wrong with you, what he's saying to you is, and yet God knew that, loved you anyway, and died for you anyway. Listen, this is what I'd say to you this morning. 
God loves you, warts and all. He knows every blemish. He knows every disposition that's wrong. He knows every act committed. He knows every perverse thought that's gone through your head. He knows all of the vile things that have dripped off your tongue. And yet He loves you still. And He loves you to the point of being willing to die on the cross for you. Jesus said it this way, John chapter 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd and the shepherd gives his life for his sheep. In John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 that we saw last week. He has delivered us up because he was delivered up because of our offenses. He was raised because of our justification. And what Paul will tell us now in verse 7, which is right before what I'm pointing to, he considers how odd and strange this really is. For scarcely for a righteous man will anyone die. Here's what he means. Man, you take the best people in this world, and it's just normally the case that people don't die even for the good people. And yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. In other words, if you were going to die for somebody, wouldn't you pick the best people? And that's not what Christ did. No, what Christ did is he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, knowing just how bad we are, Christ died for us. And how beautiful is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, very quickly, Christ saves us with his blood from wrath to come, verse 9 through 11. Verse number 9, much more having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In other words, there's wrath coming on this world. We're saved from it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, well, look, when you were enemies, if he was willing to reconcile you, now that you're reconciled, how much more shall he save you from this is the point of verse number 10. Last point very quickly. I just want to draw attention to this. Verse number 12 through verse number 21 are important theological verses. Here we have the two men set before us. The man Adam and the man Christ. And you could really tell our story. By our, I mean your story, my story, all of our stories. You could really tell all of our stories by talking about these two men. They represent on the one hand the problem. Adam eats the fruit. Yes, she eats it first, but he is the one that God holds accountable. And it is through him that we are told that all of us fall. Verse number 12, therefore, just as through one man sin enters the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because of sin. In other words, Adam messes it up for all of us. The problem that's infected my heart and my mind and your heart and mind comes through the sin of Adam. I have inherited this. Theologically, theologians call this the doctrine of original sin, meaning it's through the sin of Adam that we all get jacked up. It all gets bent and broken right here with Adam, and we are recipients and heirs with Adam. Now, there's debate as to exactly what is inherited and what's not inherited. We're not going to get into any of that. I'll just simply say it this. When you ever look at yourself in the mirror and, you, and you, you lament the things that you think you shouldn't think and the things you do that you shouldn't do, and you, when those moments when you realize that there's something wrong with me, that's a healthy place to be, by the way. In those moments, you can take it all the way back. Of course there's something wrong with you. You're a child of Adam. And it's all bent. It's all broken. That's the one man we tell the story through, but there's another man. 
It's the man Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam. The second Adam, the last Adam, the one who instantiates and accomplishes in his life and in his incarnation exactly what God intended humanity to be. That which was broken and bent by Adam and his sin is made right and whole by Christ and his life. And now what I'd point to you in verse 15, verse 16, verse number 17, and verse number 18, five times we get this idea of gift language. Paul talks about this free gift, this free gift, this free gift, this gift, and this free gift is the order in which he does it. What's this gift that he's talking about? It's salvation. It's the inheritance of righteousness in Christ, which is to say this second Adam, this true and better Adam, is the one, just as one man messed it all up for us, there's another man who has come and he's made it all right for us. He's made it whole for us. He brings completion and life and righteousness. Everything that Adam messed up for us, Christ makes right for us. And the point of that is, look, I just say this, it's an important theological discussion as to exactly what's bent and broken by the fall. Those are all important discussions, but it seems the point of what Paul is wanting to get at is this, simply. Hope, therefore, in Christ. Cleave, therefore, to Christ. Put yourself in Christ and walk with Christ because He is the one that gives us righteousness. And He is the one that gives us life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 21 through 22, and we close. For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The two men, Adam and Christ, we are of the lineage of Adam. We are of the redemption of Christ, who has made right by His grace and His work everything we made wrong by our sins. Jesus loves us. And that's our hope. You can't fix it. Christ has, and He will. Cleave, therefore, to him. Father, we love you, and we are just astounded. I am at least. Father, that you love us, that you know our names, that you know every thought we think before we think it. And I thank you, God, as I think back on my own life and my rebellion against you, all of the brokenness, all of the turmoil and difficulty that I brought that I heaped upon myself and others. And I thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace, your love, your reconciliation, your peace. God, you are kind. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, and we pray that if there are some in this room today that have not trusted him, that today they would do it. We ask this in Jesus' name.